Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Ano Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hi, listeners, and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast, where today we, Naomi, are joining what seems to be the rest of the world's media in turning our attention for a moment to the British royal family oh, once again. It's so true. The, this year has been this sort of royal frenzy. It actually goes back longer than that. Yeah. There's a, there seems to be this sort of cluster of like big royal events because mm. um, the Queen's husband died and then she died. And then there's all these scandals around alleged crimes of Prince Andrew and lawsuits and all this and the then the sort of long-running media stuff about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and all this it's like it's all been sort of building up to this royal fervor yeah it's it's unbelievable actually and i just realized today that there's the coronation to mm-hmm. come there's three days of the coronation of the new king as well that's going to come in like a few months time um so it's actually really got us relentless it's really relentless it's not going to stop it's all kind of coming in what i'm beginning to think of as well as the crown kind of zeitgeist mm-hmm. right you know like it's, I suppose it's just a coincidence, but in the background of of all of this kind of, you know, just a lot of news coming out of Buckingham Palace in, in Britain, we've had this phenomenally successful Netflix series, right, The Crown. Yes. Which all this time over the last few years has been like slowly inching its way up to the present day. And like this year it kind of came, you know, it came to its point, right, where it's almost in the present day. And it's, um, I suppose it's created like a kind of cultural moment of scrutiny is what I'm trying to say uh, about the whole idea of there being a British royal family in the first place, you know? Yeah, I guess so. And there's a sort of a whole industry around this as well. Like there's all these podcasts and documentaries mm. that sort of it spawned and like this, it's, I think it's all been driven off this fascination, which is partly underpinned by this question of like, why does something like this exist? Like, this is a kind of an absurd yeah. thing to exist. <laughs> but like, I feel like it's a lot of people who might not have taken much interest in the British royals before are suddenly invested kind of to some degree because we've got all of the mm. information about it. Um, and you pick mm. up so much information about it. Yeah, like it's, it's I, I guess so like in that light, this book that's come out by by Harry, the memoir, what's mm-hmm. it called? Spare. 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 Um, it's had like this huge success. Like I think at the, at the time of recording, it's it's already become the fastest selling non-fiction book of all time in some places. And it's only come out a few weeks ago. Yeah, it has. I mean, it's a real phenomenon. I'm walking around the metro today uh, in Paris. It's plastered all over the walls oh of God. the metro in France, right? <laughs> it's just Prince Harry's face staring right out at you. Right? What happened to you, France? <laughs> Didn't you guillotine these people? Oh, what, what happened to you? They love this royal stuff. They jump right into it. There, I would say way more kind of royal coverage you would see in France, I think, than you would see in Ireland, yeah. actually. Like, it's a big kind of pastime. But we're not talking about that in today's episode at all. In fact, we are looking at a story involving the royal family, but this is a really, really awful one. Okay. Um, This is something that took place just over 40 years ago. And a lot of listeners will know the kind of basic facts about this. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you look into it, there is actually so much more going on. When I started researching this, I was so bowled over by just how complex and far-reaching this story actually is. Okay. And we're talking, of course, about this notorious episode of the Troubles during the late 70s. And that was the murder of the late Queen's cousin, uh, Lord Mountbatten, by the IRA in 1979. Mm. So this incident, a lot of people who will know about it know about it as this murder of Lord Mountbatten, but like it it extends way further than that. It's actually this like incredible snapshot in time of Anglo-Irish relationships at this particular moment when it was becoming kind of terribly clear to everyone Mm. that, you know, everyone had failed, right? Everyone had failed catastrophically to address the situation in Northern Ireland and a monster had been created that couldn't be controlled anymore. Mm. The conflict was like entering a terrifying new phase. And this really becomes a representation of that, I think. 
Um, you know, I think I found out about this incident from The Crown <laughs> because it was mm, actually right. mentioned in that series, like it was on an episode. Um, so just to, to kind of recap, Lord Mountbatten was a pretty major figure in the British royal family. He was actually quite old when he died. He was um, just under 80, actually. And all his life, he'd been like a mainstay of these high courtly circles in England. Yeah, right. His full name was actually, let me get this right, because there's so many of them. Okay. Uh, Louis Francis Albert Victor Nicholas Mountbatten. Sounds like you're just taking roll call for class. <laughs> that actually would be a substantial little classroom. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> unsurprisingly, I suppose, uh, his friends called him Dickie. Which is none of those names. There's no Richard in there, but whatever. Um, he was born in 1900. And his title when he was born was actually Prince. He was Prince mm-hmm. Louis of Battenberg. Oh. That's an old German dynasty. And it was closely linked to the British royal line of saxe coburg and Gotha. Okay. Which is what the Windsors were originally called. Um, in fact, Battenberg, the Battenberg family, only changed their name to Mount Batten after the royal family changed their name from Saxe-Coburg to Windsor. In both instances, that was in order to sound more English. It was at a time when Britain was fighting Germany during the First World War. And if you think about it, Mount Batten is just an anglicization of Battenberg, right? Oh, Berg is mountain. That never clicked for me. So, mm, no, no me. So this guy was related to, like, everybody. His grandmother was Queen Victoria. His aunt and uncle was, were Nicholas II and Empress Alexandra of Russia. Mm. Prince Philip was his nephew. Queen Elizabeth was his second cousin. This is getting very tangled. And he was commonly referred to as well as the honorary grandfather of Prince Charles, now King Charles. So if like, you think about the fact that this guy was born in 1900, mm. he, he just comes, you know, he's of age to come face to face with like some very significant events of the 20th century. Mm. So he has these close connections to the Russian imperial family, right? So he like he he was always going back and forth to St. Petersburg as a young man and, and a child before the revolution. Wow. He fought in the First World War and the Second World War. Mm. He was like a chum of Winston Churchill's. And then in 1947, uh, Mountbatten was appointed as the last viceroy of British India. <gasps> so he was charged with managing the partition of the Indian subcontinent. Oh my God, he's that Mountbatten. I hadn't realized. He's that Mountbatten. Oh my yeah. God. Okay, I didn't know any of that. Um, I did mm. know a little bit though that his private life was very scandalous. Um, so apparently mm. his wife and he, they had an open marriage. Um, so there were rumors mm. of them having multiple affairs with men and women, um, but in a much more serious and sinister light. In 2022, allegations of child abuse were raised against Mountbatten. There's just this huge amount of literature actually written about mm. Mountbatten. And when I went to kind of do some research about this, you know, about the assassination, it was actually kind of hard to find the assassination in between everything else because, like, you know, this is just, a, like, there's a lot has been mm. written on this guy. Uh, so let's focus in on, on what this assassination means, really. So it takes place on the 27th of August, 1979. And it was a crucial moment in the Troubles not just because this guy was a royal. Um, in fact, even though his murder tends to dominate memories of mm. this event, that day, 25 people were actually killed in Ireland. It was actually one of the highest single death tolls in the Troubles in one day, right? Mm. Um, this particular set of murders are really important, firstly, because of the enormous international media coverage that they attracted. And we'll soon see that that was just not a coincidence at all. Mm. Secondly, it's significant because of what it represented in terms of the evolution of the IRA and the armed struggle, um, which was this shifting into a new phase known as the Long War, which we'll discuss in a little bit. And thirdly, it's important because it dragged both the Dublin government and the London government into the Northern Ireland conflict in a pretty kind of unignorable Mm. way, right? They kind of had to stand up and kind of be answerable, you know, both of them, right? This was like this incident that shines light on every element of the geopolitical situation of the Troubles in 1979. We have, like, for one thing, we have a celebrity royal from, like, deep within the London establishment who everyone knows, and he's part of this kind of group of, you know, very privileged people who were either willfully ignoring or just completely oblivious to the conflict Mm. in Northern Ireland. And he's being murdered within the Irish Republic, 
where at this point the Dublin government has been kind of talking a big talk about reunification for years, but has largely effectively been closing its eyes and ears to the violence, you know, just across the border. And then you have the murder being carried out by a provisional IRA based north of the border who had become just way more successful in their attempts to make Northern Ireland ungovernable than pretty much anyone had expected that they could and whose actions are just escalating at this point in this unprecedented way. Wow, that's an amazing overview and there's a lot going on there. Um, Mm. As you say, the date is crucial. It's this pivotal moment in 1979 in the development of the conflict. We're going to unpick all of this as we go along, but maybe it's a good idea to just set the scene. So famously, Mountbatten's family owned a castle in County Sligo. County Sligo being just south of the border in the west of Ireland, right on the coast and the castle's within a stone's throw of this small fishing village of Mullochmore. By the way, this is one of the most beautiful stretches of coastline on the island. So looming up in the background, you have this dramatic flat-topped green mountain called Ben Bulban. And then looking out across the bay, you can see the Donegal Mountains rising up in the distance. It's very, very popular as a tourist spot because it's got long sandy beaches and also because it's really tranquil, which is one of the reasons why the Mountbatten's liked it there. Mm, yeah. So this castle, which like you'll definitely see if you drive along this coast, you know, just mm-hmm. from the road, this kind of fascinated me in the first place because it's such a setting. Back in the 17th century, this whole area was seized from its ancestral Gaelic chiefs during the Cromwellian invasion, like so mm-hmm. much of Ireland. And Cromwell carved it up and distributed it to his various adventurers and soldiers. And the biggest parcels of land here were divided up between two colonial families. So you had the Gores on the one hand, and you had the temples, on the other hand. Mm-hmm. So the Gores, those Gores went on to become the famous Gore Booths, right? The Anglo-Irish dynasty who would kind of ironically go on to produce one of the most important revolutionaries of modern Irish history. A twist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Of course, because none other than Constance Gore Booth, um, as she was known before her marriage, would be Constance Markovich, or Countess Markovich, as we know her today. Um, she grew up in Lizadell House, just a few kilometres south of Mullachmore. Right, so that was the one estate and has a, a big, a very beautiful um, neoclassical 18th century, I think, or early 19th century uh, estate there that you can still visit today. Mm. Now, the other estate then, the one near nearby to Mullachmore, um, this was the one owned by the Temples, and that played this much less glamorous role in Irish history. Uh, in fact, it became kind of notorious. By the mid-19th century, this estate, the Temple estate, had passed into the hands of Henry John Temple, who was better known as the third Viscount Palmerston. Mm-hmm. He was one of the most powerful politicians in Britain, and he actually served as British Prime Minister not once, but twice uh, during this time. Hmm. Uh, Palmerston was also a notoriously absentee landlord. He was kind of like the platonic ideal of an absentee landlord in Ireland, right? He was the one that people were thinking of when they kind of cited absentee landlords. He had this huge estate in Sligo, almost entirely run by middlemen. And when the Great Famine hit in 1845, it became completely famous for the suffering and starvation that was Mm. happening there. Because apparently, these middlemen, you know, when the famine broke out, started sending urgent letters to Palmerston saying, hey, we need, like, we need to give rent abatements. We need to, you know, we need money to, to help these people get food. And he just didn't respond. He oh, just gosh. ignored the letters, which is kind of unimaginable, really. Apparently, he had gotten himself into loads of debt living the high life in London. And he just didn't want to know. He just ignored mm-hmm. it. He didn't want to know what was happening on his uh, Irish estate because he knew it was going to cost him so much money uh, to do anything about this. So at this point, he was foreign secretary in the British government. Wow, he's that Palmerston. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a really famous guy. Like, yeah, yeah, he's a really famous guy in British history. He only suddenly takes an interest in his Irish estate, which is the root of all his money, by the way. This is where okay. all of his income is coming from. He, he only takes an interest when somebody, one of the middlemen, I think, suggests the idea of assisted emigration to him. Lovely. Uh, so, yeah, like one of the big kind of problems for these landlords, we covered this in our famine episode, of course, was that these smallhold, low-rent tenants weren't very profitable. 
So a lot of these landlords wanted to modernize the land, get these tenants off and get big farmers in instead, mm. which could make them a lot more money. Basically, his middlemen, his advisors told Palmerston, if you just get these people to leave the country, you can actually make a lot more money, right? You know, you, you put in some money to that, you buy them a, a boat pass. You just expel them from the land. Yeah, basically, yeah, expel them from the land, yeah. I mean, like, to be fair, a lot of these people would have been thrilled to get their passage across the Atlantic paid, but even with that considered, he manages to round up a whopping 2,000 people out of his total tenantry of 9,000 and puts them on boats to Canada. I mean, he just kind of ships off a good quarter of his tenantry, right? More or less. Okay. And when they arrived in Canada, uh, this is what kind of made it even more notorious, they were in such bad condition. They, it was reported that they were hardly clothed. They were in like advanced state of starvation. That the Canadian authorities publicly shamed Palmerston in the press about it. They were like, people like you are evil. What the hell have you done to these people? You know, like how, how can you live it yourself? Like shipping these people off in this condition. And it's so bad that he had to go to the House of Lords and like answer for what he had done. And he was British Foreign Secretary at the time. Yeah. So, listen, I couldn't kind of help but kind of track that dark history because it is closely connected Yeah, it was a good digression. Yes. <laughs> it was such a juicy little story. I really had to talk about that. Yeah, so he's the guy who built the castle. Amazing. And Classy Bond is the castle that was owned by the Mountbattens, right? This would become the residence of Lord Mountbatten just, you know, half a century later, more or less. That is a pretty dark history for the mm. castle to have. Oh my God. <laughs> um, classy Bourne. Okay. It sounds very Scottish as a yeah. name. So it's called a castle, but this is actually fairly recent. I mean, if that's the guy that built it, um, it's not really a castle and sort of like medieval type kind of way that you would usually imagine. It's more like a mansion, like, you mm. know, like a big house. If you ever pass by this part of Sligo, you can't really miss it because it's like huge and towering and it's got turrets and everything. And it's built right on the shoreline and it's surrounded by acres of completely bare land. So it kind of sticks out. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely can't miss it. Um, but it, it is massive. It is this massive mansion. So obviously, Palmerston wasn't in so much debt that he couldn't build himself a new castle you right. know like uh so yeah i don't know what to make of that maybe it's maybe he could only build that castle because of the money he made out of like kind of shipping off so many of his tenants but mm-hmm. um whatever he completed this castle in 1874 then he passed it down to his nephew who was the earl of shaftesbury and mm-hmm. yes you mentioned that it sounds a bit scottish this is classy bond this idea of bond has these scottish connotations and it's built in this okay. scottish baronial style right which is really common in Scotland if you go there. And you also see it in some places in Northern Ireland, but it's fairly rare to see in the South. This is a 19th century kind of Victorian Scottish revival aesthetic. The idea basically is that you build a modern mansion to look like a fanciful version of what you think a medieval Scottish castle would look like. So like you say, it's all turrets and (laughs) battlements and ornaments and stuff. Now, it, that, that facet is really interesting because Palmerston was famously a British nationalist in the sense that he mm. was like into the idea of Britain, right, as a kind of nation, a single nation. The, the idea of making the whole UK into one culturally assimilated place. To build a, a Scottish castle like this in Ireland, it kind of to me anyway, it indicates this desire to make Ireland more like Scotland, you know? Yeah. Like, I feel like, I, or certainly like a more romanticised idea of Scotland. For people like Palmerston, you often see this in kind of the more 19th century country houses. They wanted to move away from this kind of neoclassical stuff, which was very kind of linked with strife and colonialism, and, and into something mm. kind of more familiar, you know, more unthreatening. Something that you might find in Scotland, where English aristocrats can do their hunting mm. and patronise the locals and you'll know, not have to think too much about economic catastrophe or revolution, you know, <laughs> you know without <laughs> any of these enormous political problems you know kind of underpinning it um whatever way you look at it it's it's very odd looking i think i mentioned it before uh, i'm not a huge fan of, of the architecture it stands out like a bit of a sore thumb on the landscape but it's certainly um certainly noticeable jesus like particularly in like ill fit the fact that it ends up staying there in the republic like mm. um to fill in what happened next palmerston's descendants moved out of the castle during the irish revolution 
And then for decades afterwards, Classy Bourne was pretty much left empty and unused. And it wasn't actually until 1950, Mountbatten's wife, Edwina, who inherited it, decided to come back and renovate the place as a summer residence. So from that point on, pretty much, Lord Mountbatten and his extended family would spend the entire month of August in Sligo, uh, a summer house. So that brings us up to 1979, and by that time, Lord Mountbatten was approaching 80 years of age. He still cut a striking figure, though. He had a shock of salt and pepper hair, deep tan, you know, real aristocrat. And the images we have of him from that summer, he was dressed up in this blue and white striped Breton boating sweater. They're very much playing the part of the mid-century fashionable elite. Mm. Like they made home videos where you can see them boating and hiking and hanging out on the beach and all this kind of thing. And they've all got these really fashionable tans and gorgeous clothes and they're having a great time. Yeah, so, so there's this kind of one part is kind of Kennedy and on the other mm. side it's, a, it's this kind of outdoorsy aesthetic, right? That was so in vogue for the British uh, upper classes during the 20th century. And I suppose it still is today, like to an extent... Yeah. Like, I don't know if listeners have noticed this, but, you know, there is the, there is this whole dimension of the upper orders uh, in or the old money upper orders in Britain kind of conspicuously te- spending their time outside, you know, doing lots of outdoor <laughs> stuff like hunting or horse riding or whatever. And like conspicuously mm. spending a lot of time being wet and cold and like proving how hardy they are all the time. You know, it, mm. it's something I find fascinating because I'm like I'm constantly um a lot of my research is based on the kind of power strategies of nobility and how nobility proves its nobleness and um mm. this is pretty transparent like this is this is essentially a way for old money nobles to distinguish themselves from a bourgeoisie like an urban bourgeoisie of course mm-hmm. first of all you need loads of land to do stuff like this right when the royal family goes hunting or whatever they're hunting on acres and acres of private land right Secondly, the nouveau riche in the cities just didn't want to do these things. Like mm. they wanted to spend their money on being comfortable and stuff, you know. <laughs> like uh, they wanted luxury. Yeah. So the royalty could kind of present their outdoorsy activities as this ancestral instinct that the upper middle classes could never understand. You know, you wouldn't understand why I love being outside so much because I'm I'm br- <laughs> to the manner born me. <laughs> but, <laughs> But, I mean, it's also a propaganda thing. I mean, propaganda is a big word, but like a kind of uh, image thing. You know, they, they have to make a big show of this, how much they like being cold and wet. It's very important <laughs> in order for the upper orders to maintain their class distinctions. That's so fascinating. I'd never, never thought about it that way. But it's kind of like, it, it's part of the job that they have to do this. Yeah, yeah, it's part of the job. Whether you like it or not, right? I mean, I would wager that a lot of them don't enjoy doing this at all. But it's not really an option. Like, Mm. the kids are taken out on hunting trips as soon as they're able to walk, basically. The whole calendar, the royal calendar, is chock-a-block with these outdoorsy activities, you know, whether people want to do it or not. It's all wrapped Mm. up as well with the dimension of, like, playing the landlord. Because at the end of the day, Mm. these people were effectively, even the royal family at the end of the day, are just big, wealthy farmers, right? This is all based on on agriculture. And their whole tradition of their class is based around the management of, of their land. So the Mountbatten's were no different. Apparently, he used to round up his family and they would go out and do maintenance work on land around Classy Bon as a kind of leisure activity, right? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so dark considering his absentee forebears. Yeah, he's only there in the summer as well. So like the month yeah. of August. So he's a bit of an absentee himself. Yeah, he's a bit of an absentee himself indeed. Imagine what the actual maintenance workers, you know, who actually kind of do this all year round, would have been thinking watching this family, this royal family, prancing around and proving how salt of the earth Mm. they were as a leisure activity when they were probably (laughs) making a complete hames of the place, like digging holes in the wrong place or whatever. (laughs) But yeah, no, I I am fascinated with this because all this kind of stuff, like hunting deer at Balmoral or like hiking Mm. or whatever... At the end of the day, this stuff is no different from Marie Antoinette dressing up as a milkmaid at Versailles, right? That, that's essentially what we're looking at here. Like the, the mm. nobles and the royals presented as proof that they're so connected to the land, but they're not really. Like they're dressing up as Marie Antoinette and they're milking cows, you know? At the end mm. of the day, they go back and sleep in a castle after this, right? <laughs> um, so for the Mountbatten's, this was basically like a little Balmoral. That was the idea. It's a charming little country retreat. It doesn't have the frills of London, which is part of the charm. It doesn't have the protocol of court. And there's plenty of, you know, rustic locals adding to the authenticity of the place. 
<laughs> oh, it gives me the creeps, Tim. Yeah, lots of locals in the area were fine with this, of course. This family was able to inject quite a hefty sum of money into the economy of the nearby village of Mullochmore. And when we say that this was the retreat of the Mountbatten family, we're talking about groups of maybe 20 people at a time. And many of them would have had a kind of retinue of assistance, security teams and whatnot, not to mention visitors coming and going constantly. So that's, that's you know, an extensive and incredibly wealthy coterie of people to be coming and going with all kinds of requirements and fancies that required them to spend money. So right off the bat, you know, whole teams of local people would be employed during the summer months to staff the castle, to man the kitchens, to clean the bedrooms, to deliver provisions, look after the grounds and all this various and quite intensive labour that's required to keep a big mansion like that up and running. And then there'd be all the luxuries and the distractions that would be catered for. So, for example, uh, Mountbatten decided that he wanted his own fishing boat at the estate. So he commissioned a team of local men to build him one and manage its upkeep throughout the year. So stuff like this was really very valuable in 1970s Ireland. I mean, this is a time when employment was scarce, particularly in the West. A lot of local people got to know Mountbatten and the family pretty well, and he'd built up quite a good reputation in the village. Yeah, right. So let's take a moment here, because I bet there's loads of listeners who are finding this kind of cosy relationship or the fact that Mountbatten even is here in the first place weird, right? Mm. Um. This castle was not in the UK. You know, it's not it's not in part of his realm. It was in a state whose war of independence from Britain was still in living memory for many people. Yeah. And where animosities towards the British state were still running extremely high in lots of places. But there is loads of things to take into account here. So firstly, mm. at this stage in 1979, there were still loads and loads of Anglo-Irish landed dynasties living south of the border in parts of Ireland. Mm. They still lived in local mansions. They still sometimes provided employment to whole towns and villages, just like they had before independence. Mm. Some of them, loads of them, had become nationalists. Some were still unionist. Some were disliked. Some were very popular. Some were just very ordinary people who were just still living in these mansions. Um, mm. But the fact of the matter is that they were there. It wasn't as unusual as it would be today. It's just part of the fabric. It was part of the fabric. And, you know, they, they died away, basically, by the 1990s, 2000s, basically. So it's only kind of recently that that facet of Irish society has disappeared. Mm. There's that. Also, if these people provided a way to make a living, you know, local people didn't necessarily have a problem with that. Like, they didn't have any political power anymore as a group. They were just this weird residual colonial presence on the landscape. And Mountbatten was able to slot himself into that role fairly easily. Just kind of eccentric presence. Yeah, exactly. Very good um, summary. The other thing is that when you take away the factor of political violence, most of the country was fairly sleepy, with very little crime, very little happening at all. Actually, this is mid-20th century. Most of the young population is just emigrating in droves. The people who are left are mostly older. They just want a quiet life. So it seems that Mountbatten just didn't think he had anything to worry about holidaying in the South. Mm -hmm. That perception itself... I mean, or just what I've kind of asserted there about the perceptions, it shows how polarized the realities of life on the island had become north and south of the border. Mm. Because despite that sense of sleepy little village, no problems here, that Mountbatten appears to have felt, Classy Bawn Castle is situated less than 20 kilometers from the border with Northern Ireland. And in Northern Ireland, the conflict was escalating at a terrifying pace. Okay, so before we go any further with the Mountbatten story, let's assess what the situation was in Northern Ireland at this point. So this is August 1979, almost exactly 10 years after violence had exploded in the North in the aftermath of the civil rights marches. That 10-year mark was significant in itself. When the conflict broke out initially, it was treated as this kind of anomaly. Um, You might remember from previous episodes that the main call from the Unionist establishment back in the late 60s was for, quote, a return to normality, or at least normality as they would have understood it. And if you look back at a lot of the early reactions to the Troubles, internment without trial, banning of protests, even the deployment of the British Army... All of these represented very short-term solutions. The attitude was basically there were riots, there was discontent, this would be addressed, and then everything would calm down. 
Ironically, of course, it was largely because of the short-term thinking and the heavy-handed suppression of civilians that this involved that the problem didn't go away. In fact, it was getting exponentially worse. The fact that the conflict had now lasted a full decade was also highly significant for ordinary people in the North. This thing, this outburst of violence, which everyone had hoped would be resolved quickly and effectively, now seemed like it was going to cast a shadow over their entire lives. Yeah, the nature of the conflict had also completely transformed over these 10 years. If we think back to 1969, Mm. when Catholic nationalists in cities like Derry started to rebel against the oppression of the Unionist establishment, this was a case mostly of ordinary civilians doing things like throwing Molotov cocktails at the police or building Mm. barricades out of rubble in the streets, sourcing rusty old rifles later on from across the border. But now, the provisional IRA, which had become the dominant faction of the IRA since the early 70s, was really professional. They had, at this stage, organized themselves into a set of sophisticated military factions, which operated all across the island on both sides of the border. Mm. They had gained access also to some very serious weaponry. Um, That included machine guns they had now. They had missiles. And perhaps most notoriously, they had these gas-operated assault rifles called the Armalite AR-18. They had also become experts in bomb-making and bomb improvisation, right? So they were making new bombs which people didn't even know about. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. This was all developing in tandem with the presence of the British military in the territory. We have this military there as well, who are also armed to the teeth. So in the 10 years between 1969 and 1979, the context of street riots had escalated into shootouts and bombings on the streets of Northern Ireland, with the IRA, the British Army, the police forces and loyalist paramilitary groups launching violent attacks on one another, sometimes at this stage almost on a daily basis. Now, it's important to note as well that a lot of this violence was centred on the cities of Belfast and Derry. There were a lot of places north of the border which would have felt just as safe and sleepy as Mullochmore in the south. And perhaps that goes a long way to explain why Mountbatten seems to have felt so far out of harm's way there. But every now and again there would be a devastating attack in the most unlikely of places. And the feeling of generalised insecurity was increasing every day. Okay, so added to those paramilitary developments were some crucial political developments regarding London's attitude to the conflict in Northern Ireland. Mm. Now, as we have seen just time and time again on this podcast, there seems to be nothing that Westminster likes less than to be dragged into the complicated problems of Northern Ireland. And in 1979, you know, this was absolutely no different. So for London, for the London government, the deployment of the British army to the north was originally supposed to be an emergency response, right? You just, you know, you don't send in the army unless it's an emergency. It was supposed to be a way to like put a lid on this whole thing quickly and brutally so that um, the government could get back to its regular order of business and yeah, like you said, kind of quote, go back to normal. It's important to note, uh, by the by, that Margaret Thatcher had just taken over as Prime Minister in May of 1979 and she was famously pretty uninterested in understanding the complexities of Northern Ireland and as it happens, she was also outraged that she was, in her view, wasting the manpower of tens and thousands of British soldiers who were stationed in Northern Ireland now for a full decade. Okay. Uh, for, for her and for the Conservative Party, this was costing London a fortune. It also meant that these tens of thousands of forces couldn't be redeployed elsewhere, right? There was other places mm-hmm. they could be. Um, there's also this whole kind of voter dimension to it. Having the British army in Northern Ireland meant that British soldiers were being killed all the time. Mm. And that played very badly with voters back in Britain. And even worse, like after all of this, 10 years of army deployment and all the cost in money and in lives that that had entailed, the situation, it seemed, was worse. It was Not only was it not better, it was infinitely worse than it had been to begin with. So in mm. Westminster's view, the thing to do now was to look for a way to just pull the army, quietly if necessary, back out of Northern Ireland and just leave Northern Ireland to its own devices. So in 1975, a new strategy paper called The Way Ahead was published in tandem with the British Army, outlining Westminster's revised attitude to the conflict. This paper set out a policy known as primacy of the police, which was divided into three basic strategies. One, Ulsterization, 
two, normalization, and three, criminalization. So what does that mean? Ulsterization referred to a policy of making Northern Ireland's conflict into an issue for Northern Ireland itself to manage without intervention from London. The idea was to withdraw the British Army troops and replace them with armed police and locally recruited regiments instead. The original emergency reaction, in other words, was going to be made semi-permanent with newly equipped local forces set up to face the IRA on a long-term basis. In this way, it was thought the conflict could be, quote, contained within Northern Ireland. London could wash its hands of direct involvement and the government wouldn't have to deal with a public backlash whenever British soldiers were killed. Okay, so as part of this primacy of the police policy, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, or RUC, which was the police force in Northern Ireland at the time, would become the principal combatants against the IRA instead of the army. Mm. Um, Also key was the relatively new army infantry called the Ulster Defence Regiment, or the UDR. So the UDR had been set up in back in 1970 as a part-time volunteer regiment, and it was mostly made up of local recruits, Uh, In Northern Ireland, the original idea was to have a kind of mix of people, but uh, by this stage, it was almost entirely Protestant Unionist uh, recruits. Mm. Now, the UDR was transformed into a permanent fixture in the territory. So it's kind of a local army regiment that's set up on permanent active service indefinitely. And then, of course, there's criminalisation, which meant aggressively treating IRA attacks as instances of criminality rather than as political or military actions. Having the police rather than the army tackle IRA attacks was all part of this. Um, The idea was to remove some of the glamour from the IRA and to stop nationalists thinking about it as a revolutionary army. Criminalisation was tied up with the third strategy of normalisation. This meant returning everyday life in Northern Ireland as much as possible despite the ongoing chaos, thereby thwarting the IRA's aim of making the territory ungovernable. Perhaps most consequentially, criminalisation and normalisation involved the removal of political status for IRA prisoners and categorising them instead as regular criminals, which of course would become the basis of the major hunger strike campaigns in later years. So this whole new set of policies and strategies meant that the IRA in reaction was going to have to change its approach. Mm. Like you just said, Naomi, the original strategy of the IRA had been to make life so impossible for the British Army and for governance in the territory that the troops would just have to give up and withdraw, that it would just be impossible to continue. But now, with Westminster setting up this whole apparatus of long-term combat with the IRA, the IRA were going to adjust their approach accordingly. At this stage, we see the provisional IRA shift gears towards what they called the Long War. In other words, Mm. they were accepting the fact that they were not going to win anytime soon. They were going to have to settle in for a semi-permanent state of conflict. And they were also going to have to engage with strategies that were much less short-term and much more political uh, in their nature. In the 1977 edition of the Green Book, which was a kind of IRA manual, the long war strategy was laid out like this. By now, it is clear that our task is not only to kill as many enemy personnel as possible, but of equal importance to create support which will carry us not only through a war of liberation, which could last another decade, but which will support us past the Brits out stage to the ultimate aim of a democratic socialist republic. Okay, now... Part of this shift of the IRA towards a long war was an increased focus on the propaganda value of their attacks. Mm. They were very, very aware that all these policies coming out of London were largely built around changing the perception of the IRA in a few kind of key ways. So London knew, right? London knew that by removing British troops and replacing them with local regiments and the police the IRA could no longer maintain this kind of glamorous image of fighting against British occupiers. Instead, now, they would be killing other Irish people, Mm. right? And that wasn't good for their self-image, right? You know, this kind of self-styled image of kind of anti-colonial revolutionaries. Um, Mm -hmm. They were just going to have to kill people who were born down the road. 
Secondly, by treating the IRA as ordinary criminals, London could recast them now as gangsters, right? They could kind of talk about them as gangsters instead of this insurgent political paramilitary, and again, kind of take away some of their image. And because Mm. of these two last points, the press coverage the IRA managed to gain, especially in Britain, was going to be much more easily controllable. It's a, it's a sad but true fact that the murder of Irish people, whether they're unionist or nationalist, just wasn't reported by the British press anywhere near as much as the murder of British people. Uh, you know, mm. didn't make headlines if, if it was reported at all. So London knew in this very kind of cynical move by just getting British people out of Northern Ireland, it didn't really matter how many people would die. They weren't going to make it that much into the British media. And that would deprive mm. the IRA of the oxygen of publicity, which they really did depend upon. Remember, this is a political campaign. The whole point is that people kind of pay attention to this, right? Mm-hmm. More than this, then, if London managed to cast the IRA as ordinary, useless gangsters, when they were mentioned in the press, when they did get into the press, The political motivations didn't have to be mentioned. Instead, they would just become a kind of faceless, murderous bogeyman who were intent on killing for reasons that just weren't particularly important for the readers or the audience to understand. I see. So, to counter these strategies, the IRA now started to aim to ensure that their actions would be as unignorable as possible for the British public. Okay. So they start to kind of turn towards actions that you can't spin, actions that you have to give media attention to, and actions that kind of have to show the political dimension of what they're doing. Mm. And it's in this context in which we see the murder of Lord Mountbatten taking shape. So let's get back to Mountbatten then, at Classy Bowen, where we left him. So August 1979, the Mountbatten family had arrived to their Sligo home to spend the summer. We talked about the ease that the Mountbatten seemed to feel south of the border, uh, but lots of people actually around him were quite concerned about his safety on this trip. Even if he didn't feel it, others were already. Um, It was known that the IRA had toyed with the idea of assassinating him before. And now in the current circumstances, this was more of a worry than ever. If the IRA wanted to make a statement, Mountbatten was a prime target. He was a prominent member of the royal family. He was a former head of the colonial establishment in India. He's someone whose death would be sure to dominate British media. And unbeknownst to Mountbatten, this year, uh, those plans had all come to fruition. On the night of the 26th of August, 1979, a member of the IRA's South Armagh Brigade boarded Mountbatten's fishing boat and concealed a 22 kilo block of explosives under the deck. This was the same fishing boat, by the way, that he had commissioned locals in Mullamore to build for his summer holidays. Now, this bomb in itself represented just how sophisticated the IRA had become. It was one of a kind of new generation of remote controlled bombs that they had developed. Um, Mm. They actually used like toys, children's toys. They took out the remote controlled elements and kind of set them up for these bombs. Mm. So it meant that you could plant the bomb whenever you wanted and then lie in wait for the right moment for detonation. So it's pretty sure that someone was waiting nearby for Mountbatten to take this fishing boat out to sea and to choose the exact moment that they wanted to set it ablast. But it wasn't just Mountbatten who got on that boat. On the morning of the 27th of August, he took several members of his family with him to go lobster fishing in the waters outside Mullamore. On board the boat were his daughter Patricia, his daughter's husband John Brayburn, and John's 83-year-old mother. There were also his two grandchildren, 14-year-old twins, Nicholas and Timothy. In addition, there was another boy on board who wasn't related to the Mountbatten's at all. He was 15-year-old Paul Maxwell. Um, He'd come down from Enniskillen across the border with his family to spend the summer in Mullochmore. Mountbatten had hired him for the season to look after the boat, which he was thrilled to do. So he left his family in their holiday home that morning and joined the Mountbatten's at sea. Now, the brutality of this attack is hard to convey. Uh, The explosion came just as the boat left the small village harbour and it blew it completely asunder into tiny, tiny pieces. So Mountbatten and his 14-year-old grandchild Nicholas and 15-year-old Paul Maxwell 
were all killed instantly. Their 83-year-old grandmother died from her wounds the next day, and the others survived, but they were seriously injured. The explosion was witnessed by multiple onlookers who were working in and around the harbour that day, and fishing boats were sent out immediately to try and rescue the victims. Around the same time, some 100 kilometres away, a man named Thomas McMahon was arrested by Gardaí for driving a stolen car. It transpired that he was a member of the South Armagh Brigade and the man responsible for having planted the bomb in Mountbatten's boat. Now, if the IRA were looking for media coverage, they got it. The news of Mountbatten's assassination was splashed all over the media immediately and we see journalists from around the world descending on this tiny village of Mullochmore. But even as this was happening, even as the people of the area were still reeling from this explosion, this attack had only just begun. On the opposite side of the country, the South Armagh Brigade were already preparing for another attack. This time the location was at the border between North and South, at its most easterly extremity. Just north of the city of Dundalk, the border runs for a small stretch directly down the middle of the Newry River. It's one of the many odd configurations of this very complex border. Um, here it runs from the sea, upstream of the river's estuary for a few kilometres, before veering unexpectedly inland again. And that leaves a kind of finger of coastal land in the Republic that reaches up to touch the north. North of the river, on the Northern Ireland side, lies the small town of Warren Point. And directly opposite, on the Republic side, is the tiny village of Omeath. Although at some points you can stand on one side of the river and almost throw a stone to the opposite bank, it's actually quite difficult to get across. There are no bridges at all until you travel many more kilometres upstream to the town of Newry. Now, the road running along the northern bank of this river was well known by British military forces to be an extremely vulnerable location. Directly opposite on the Republic side, the bank was densely wooded, so it would have been easy for IRA snipers to fire across the river while concealed among the trees. At the same time, the British military in these parts always had to be careful to take different routes each time they were on the move, because otherwise the IRA would learn their habits and would attack accordingly. Mm. So today, on the 27th of August, while everyone was talking about the murder of Mountbatten on the other side of the island, a set of armed lorries from the 2nd Battalion Parachute Regiment made their way down the banks of the Newry River at Warren Point. The name of this regiment might ring a bell for some listeners. Uh, the Parachute Regiment was, of course, the same regiment that was implicated in the Bloody Sunday Massacre seven years previously, and who at this stage had never admitted responsibility for those shootings of unarmed civilians. Now, the South Armagh Brigade of the IRA saw its chance at revenge. Once again, they had set up remotely controlled bombs. The first one was hidden in a truck parked alongside the road on which the soldiers were travelling. The second, oddly enough, was hidden in the gateway of yet another stately home, Narrow Water Castle, whose grounds lay just outside Warren Point. That afternoon, somewhere in the dense woods on the other side of the river, an IRA agent lay in wait. When the convoy of soldiers drove past the first location, the bomb was remotely activated. It blew two trucks to pieces and killed six soldiers and seriously wounded two others. So this was a moment of complete chaos on the banks of the Newry River. There was smoke and debris everywhere. The survivors were staggering around looking for the wounded and the dead. And one of the first things that the soldiers did was to call in reinforcements. So a nearby convoy arrived on the scene within about 20 minutes. Mm. And this, when the reinforcements arrived, was when the second blast was detonated. This time, 12 soldiers from the reinforcement convoy were blown to pieces. And the scene of carnage was unimaginable. But there was more bloodshed to come. That same day, a young Englishman named William Hudson had been visiting from London to visit his cousins who lived in the village of Omeath on the other side of the border. In a twist of supreme irony, back in London, William Hudson's father happened to work as a coachman for the royal family at Buckingham Palace. At the very same time that the initial blast went off in Warren Point, William was walking with his cousin Barry through the woods on the south side of the river. 
Hearing the explosion, they rushed to the shore to see what had happened and they witnessed the chaos on the Northern Ireland bank of the river. At the same moment, the British soldiers were scrambling around to figure out what was happening and they already had a good idea that the attack had come from the Republic side of the river. Some soldiers claimed that the IRA had started firing on them across the river after the blast, but the IRA always denied this. Whatever the case, they spotted William and Barry standing on the shore watching them and they took aim at them. Barry was shot in the arm by an army bullet and immediately started running back towards the trees. It was only then that he looked behind him that he saw his cousin William lying lifeless, having been shot in the head and killed instantly. In all, out of the 25 people murdered on the 27th of August 1979, seven of them were civilians, including two children. And the killing of 18 British soldiers made it the single highest death toll in a day for the British Army during its entire time in Northern Ireland. These incidents sparked a total panic in the army and in the establishment both in London and in Dublin. Mm. Uh, For many people, it had just not been known or expected that the IRA were able to do this, that they were able to pull off such a sophisticated ambush. And, you know, from all accounts, this was a very sophisticated and highly well-orchestrated attack in in both situations. So for lots of people, suddenly... This was a signal. This was this was a sign. The conflict in Northern Ireland was entering a really dark and really irrevocable new phase. This level of violence was going to be the new normal. Among those who were thrown into disarray by the news was Britain's new Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. She herself was still reeling from the IRA assassination of her close advisor and then Shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, the Conservative MP Airy Neve, who'd been killed in a car bomb explosion outside the British Parliament a few months earlier. The day after the attacks, she showed up unannounced in Belfast to do a walkabout with the public, apparently showing determination in the face of the attacks, but also abiding by the tenets of the normalisation policy, demonstrating that she could walk the streets of Northern Ireland without danger. The damage, though, had already been done at this stage. The danger posed by the IRA and their dedication to a long war was, just as they planned, pretty unignorable. The media in Britain was dominated for days, for weeks, with news of this attack. And in the meantime, the IRA used this spotlight to make a kind of notorious public statement regarding the killings. They published it in the Republican newspaper on Fablucht, and the title, even the title, was designed to kind of get people's heckles up. They titled it The Execution of Soldier Mountbatten. So this is, I mean, it's saying so many things at once, which I suppose we don't have time to talk about here, but we might talk about a bit more in the um, Mm. after show debrief on Patreon. So this bombing, uh, the statement read, was, quote, A discriminate operation to bring to the attention of the English people the continuing occupation of our country. The British Army acknowledged that after 10 years of war, it cannot defeat us. But yet the British government continue with the oppression of our people and the torture of our comrades in the H-blocks. Well, for this, we will tear out their sentimental imperialist heart. The death of Mountbatten and the tributes paid to him will soon be in sharp contrast to the apathy of the British government and the English people to the deaths of over 300 British soldiers and the deaths of Irish men, women and children at the hands of their forces. Now, while the British government came to terms with the reality of what the IRA had just done, international focus also settled on another element in all this, the Republic. Both of these attacks had been carried out from south of the border, and in the case of the Warren Point bombs, the Republic had literally been used as a launch pad in order to make attacks on what was officially UK territory. The Taoiseach of Ireland at that time was the Fianna Fáil politician Jack Lynch, who incidentally had also been Taoiseach during the outbreak of the Troubles ten years previously. Back then, in 1969, when Catholic refugees were pouring over the border, he famously made an emboldened speech about the impending fall of the Northern Ireland establishment. He said, quote, It is clear now that the present situation cannot be allowed to continue. It is evident also that the Stormont government is no longer in control of the situation. It is clear also that the Irish government can no longer stand by and see innocent people injured and perhaps worse. 
Right, so this was, you know, this was a really significant statement kind of in the history and the recent history mm. of the Troubles. And a lot of people saw that statement as an indication back then in 1969 that Jack Lynch intended for the Irish military to intervene in Northern Ireland. Uh, but of course, that never happened. So it's at this fun, he's put in this very funny situation almost exactly 10 years later where pretty much the media and the establishment in Britain was now accusing the Republic of harboring terrorists, right? You know, we have all of these voices openly accusing Dublin of not doing enough to combat IRA activity in the South. And like, this was a sore point, right? This is embarrassing for the Dublin government. So they had convicted one person for the murder of Mountbatten, sure, but only because they chanced upon him driving a stolen car, not because they had, like, sophisticated mm. intelligence services. Like, there was no two ways about it. The unarmed Garda Siakana, uh, which is the police force in the South, in the 1970s was nowhere near prepared to deal with this kind of paramilitary activity in the Republic, um, and especially when it came to constant cross-border activity. And of course Dublin knew that. Mm. They had to kind of hold their head high and kind of hold their position in this situation while coming for coming in for a kind of barrage of abuse from London, basically. So take a listen to this clip from BBC News that was broadcast shortly after the killings. Um, Jack Lynch has just travelled to London where he met with Margaret Thatcher to discuss the possibility of coordinated cross-border cooperation between the UK and Ireland. And I think it's on this same day that Lord Mountbatten's funeral is taking place. The nation pays its final tribute to Earl Mountbatten of Burma, victim of the IRA. His funeral service at Westminster Abbey was attended by the whole royal family and leaders from many parts of the world. One of them, the Irish Prime Minister, Mr Lynch, later had talks with Mrs Thatcher and they agreed on the need for greater cooperation on security. After the talks, Mrs Thatcher made no comment in public, but Mr Lynch did. Philip Whitfield asked the Irish Premier what closer cooperation between the two countries in fact meant. It means that uh, in the light of the events of last week, of particularly the uh, assassination of Lord Mountbatten and his relatives, that the cooperation that has taken place hasn't been fully effective in the light of the events in uh, Warren Point, that it hasn't been fully effective there. And uh, what the communique says that obviously it requires, the situation now requires that substantial improvements take place. Will you allow British soldiers to come across the border in hot pursuit of terrorists? And hot pursuit is, is I don't think, is, is, is on because let me say that we have no indication at any stage never had that somebody was seen committing a terrorist act, someone, so to speak, caught in the act, and then... So you won't allow soldiers to No, 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 it doesn't door. arise, it doesn't arise. Uh, in fact, uh, suggestions were made, but that wasn't one of them. This is such an interesting clip. So Jack Lynch has to deal with this suggestion that he should let the British army like run in and out of the Republic at will and used arm armed force, which would obviously be completely unacceptable to the Irish government and people. But at the same time, he's trying to be diplomatic considering what's just happened. So he's just in this really tight spot. Yeah, it is. It's really fascinating. At this moment of kind of crisis, he has to deal with this sense of a slight sense of ignorance of this kind of alternative reality. Yeah, this alternative reality where Ireland isn't a real independent state, you know, is like it shouldn't yeah. really be bigging itself up on ideas of actual sovereign territory and stuff. Like, come on, guys, you know, this kind of line of questioning. <laughs> like, it reminds me of those points in Brexit, right? When you had journalists like earnestly asking you know, politicians, why doesn't Ireland just join the UK? You know, mad kind of questions that they wouldn't ask anyone from any other country that's kind of based on the premise that Ireland isn't a real country in their view, right? If we keep in mind that this is 1979, and remember again, the War of Independence, let alone the Troubles, is still very much in mm. living memory. It's, it's only a few years ago that British soldiers were gunning down mm. civilians across the border. When you really kind of keep that context in mind, it would be so unthinkable for Annie Taoiseach to allow the British army to cross the border whenever they thought it was necessary, right? Like nobody in mm. um, like pretty much on the island of Ireland at this point trusted the British army. Uh, but here Lynch has to approach this, like his position is kind of unreasonable and he has to deal with that. Yeah, it's fascinating to, to kind of hear all this <laughs> happening. 
no matter mm. what, though, some major discussions about further cross-border cooperation did happen. A lot of people saw this as a turning point in British-Irish relations in their cooperation against the IRA. And remember, of course, we always have to remember, it's easy to forget, that the IRA was opposed to UK rule in Northern Ireland, but it was also opposed to, to the Republic rule in the 26 counties, which they saw as an illegitimate state without the North united with it. So those discussions uh, between Lynch and Thatcher, they were really quite something. And for some people in Dublin, they were so unpopular, uh, including, by the way, Sheila de Valera. Sheila de Valera, daughter of Eamon de Valera. She was uh, a Fianna Fáil TD at the time. And after Lynch went and mm. talked to Margaret Thatcher in London, she publicly challenged Lynch's leadership um, during a commemoration speech later that year. So like tensions rolling really, really high about this. Right, he's dealing with this domestic um, political like situation that, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult one to yeah. broach. In another twist of irony, Mountbatten had planned his own funeral actually long before any of this. And that turned out to be this huge, lavish state affair with full regalias and marching bands and horse convoys parading through the streets of London. Many people compared it to the funeral of Winston Churchill a few years before. So not only did the IRA get the international attention they were looking for, but they got it on this kind of monumental British state funded way, like um, marching in all the full colours through the centre of, of the British capital. Yeah, it's something else. Uh, so back at Mullochmore, Classybon Castle was eventually sold in 1991 to a local businessman, mm. a local businessman who had actually been leasing it for much of the year already for, for decades when the Mountbatten's weren't there. He bought the whole thing. And for the mm. first time, after 300 years, the heirs of the Temple dynasty left that land for good. And I suppose, Tim, that's where we'll have to leave it for today. So it's a fascinating and a dark story uh, and amazing to delve into. As you say, an absolute like snapshot of the situation of Anglo-Irish relations at the time that's actually so much richer than the sort of tokenistic death of a celebrity, mm. which I suppose the, the murder is uh, remembered as now. Absolutely. There is actually so much more to say and we are going to say it because we're not going anywhere for some of you. We are going to be staying on our mic now to record our extra content for Patreon subscribers. We're going to publish a half pint debrief of this episode where we'll discuss all the details and a little bit more and get into some of the juicy nooks and crannies. And you can hear it right now, uh, plus loads more extra content. We're coming up to almost 100 bonus episodes on there by signing up to support the podcast on patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. But for us on the main pod, that's Slon for me. Slon, everyone. <laughs>